Your sweetheart, that was great. Appreciate it. Good girl. You know, <clears throat> I, I came, a, thought about this uh, the other night. I was uh, talking to, uh, talking to uh, uh, Tara, and uh, I know a number of your kids are, are playing um, instruments now, and uh, they're, uh, you're, they're getting very good at it. And we have a number of people here in the church that are more than qualified to, uh, to help people. And I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, we use this hymnal here, you know, and they actually make all of the books that go along with all the various instruments that put it in the same key as this book. In other words, um, you could play, have an ensemble that would play uh, while the song service was going on. And I think, you know, you little guys and gals that do the music, and I think it would be great. And we've got a number of you that we just set a little section right here, maybe move out those end chairs and, and get you those books. And uh, I know Will would probably be willing to work with you to help you put it all together. And some of your other ones who are good with music. <laughs> Maybe not will, but uh, <laughs> we, we, we kind of, I don't know that the boogie, woogie, boogie, joy of company C would kind of work, but, uh, but no, he would be fine. And uh, I think it would be a great, I think it would be a great thing for our kids to play along with the service uh, music myself. So, and I think that that would be a great thing. And I think that would be a great ministry for our children. So. What? What's your problem? <laughs> you like that idea? I, I love this idea of bringing books to kids. Oh. Well, we got one on your side, Will. <laughs> I'm on your side, buddy. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> let's turn to Proverbs chapter 10. And uh, my, I want to, I want to. Uh, we're working on this little section here of chapter 10, verses 12, 13, and 14. I'm sorry, that's what we preached last time. I'm all screwed up here because I was excited about Will. But last week we, we, we saw out of Proverbs chapter 10, verses 12, 13, and 14, I gave you six fundamental principles <clears throat> that are built around uh, the contrast of negative and positive and built around the contrast between a wise man and a foolish man. And we saw uh, the mouth of a righteous man is tends to life, the mouth of a wicked man, it tends to violence. Then the second set of principles was hatred stirs up wrath, <clears throat> but love covereth all sins. And then the third set was <clears throat> lips of understanding, but rod for the back of a fool, God's chastisement. And we saw and took some time with each one of them, and you really saw how that the book of Proverbs kind of uh, gives you so much information. We could probably spend a Sunday alone on each one of these, but you know, we don't want to get bogged down to that degree, but I want to keep it moving, but I want to make sure you get everything. And today I want to look again at another set of principles found in verses 14, 15, and 16. Now, we'll, we won't get past verse 14 today, but this will be, we'll work on this section for the next couple of weeks. But uh, I, I, now I'm going to tell you right out of the chute, this is going to be a fun message today. It's going to be a little different than you normally have. You're going to be a silent participant in this. And uh, that way, uh, you, you know, you know it, it'll be good for you. It'll be a little different than we normally do. But uh, let's read it down here in verse uh, 14 and 15 and 16 of Proverbs chapter 10. It says this, Wise men lay up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. 
The rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. The labor of the righteous tendeth the life, the fruit of the wicked to sin. Now, Father, help us today as we uh, come to uh, this passage and begin to look at some things here. And, uh, Lord, in one verse particular, Lord, I want to focus today to try to help these young men and these young ladies, these moms and dads, these men and women who in their hearts have committed to, <clears throat> to learn the Bible and to get the Bible down and help us in all that we do, Father, to give you the honor and glory today. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, we're not going to get out of verse 14 today, but uh, verse 14 says, Wise men lay up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. And I want to talk today about laying up knowledge. I want to, I want to define the concept for you. When you leave here today, I don't want this just to be another term that you heard. I want it to stick with you. <clears throat> I want you to remember it. I want you to go out of here today understanding what exactly that means. Because it's so easy today. Oh, yeah, lay up knowledge. Yeah, I got it. No, no. I want you to go out of here with a Bible definition of what it takes and what it means for you and I to lay up knowledge, to store it up, to warehouse it. And uh, I, I wanted to find that concept. And I want to do it by giving you a real practical lesson uh, from my own life. What I learned so long ago that has served me so well uh, in everything that uh, I've had to try to accomplish in my life by learning this thing. And I want to talk about the concept and giving you uh, the understanding of laying up knowledge. Now, we have a lot of young men and a lot of young ladies and a lot of moms and dads in their middle ages and even in the later years in life that you want to learn the Bible. And you're never too old <coughs> to begin to learn the Bible. There's never a time in your life where God says, look, oh, you're too old, you can't get this. Because the Bible's not connected with your intelligence. It's not connected on your ability to remember anything. It's connected on your heart that you want to love God and you want to learn things from Him. So wherever you're at in life, you can apply what I'm about to talk to you today. Now, let me start by this. Let me talk to you about building your library of Bible truth based on biblical principles. If you were a lawyer and I was a lawyer today, we would have either ourselves or we would have access to a, a law library. In a law library, there would be thousands of law books. And it would be endless of the books that you could have in a law library. Thousands of them. Each one of them on different case laws. Each one of them dealing with different statutes or different codes or di different legal references and briefs. And if you had a particular case you were on, and you were getting ready for trial, you'd get maybe, oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 books out of the various shelves of the library that dealt with that particular case. You'd want to make sure that when you went to trial, that the judge didn't throw it out because you didn't do your homework, and you tried to bring something up or tried to make a case that Missouri law or federal law had already sustained something that you better know. So you'd get your books out and you'd start to go over the subjects of your case to put it all out. You'd build your case on a legal system that the state of Missouri has set down. 
That's how, along with the evidence and testimonies, a lawyer uh, builds his case to get ready to go to trial. You know, we all talk about abortion, and we know abortion's wrong, and we know that America has struggled with the issue on abortion. It's been to the Supreme Court. It's been to every court in in the country uh, at some time or the other. And when they bring it into court, they always go back to something that you probably have heard, a case called Roe versus Wade that goes back to 1973. That was the Supreme Court decision on abortion for this country. So every time somebody wants to try to get rid of abortion or get around it, when they go to trial, they always bring out the Supreme Court case on it, and they use that as the standard. You see it all the time. We've kicked prayer out of schools. It's now illegal to pray in school and to have public prayer in school. That goes back to 1962 when the case study of Engel versus Vitala. Uh, a case that's set in Supreme Court. And so when a lawyer wants to deal with these things, he has to go back and find the case law, what either the Supreme Court of Missouri or uh, the United States has set down that this is the precedent, and that's what he's got to work with. Now, for you and me as Christians, we do the exact same thing as far as building a biblical Christian library. You see our bookstore back there, and even a greater example would be our website. I can't tell you how much I appreciate Nancy and Rose. They sit here on Thursday night, and they detail out every question. So when they put it on the website that that you can actually, without listening to everything, you can find the subjects of what you want. That's That's a tremendous thing that they do. But think of that in that bookstore like your like your law library. Like the only in a biblical sense. Think of all that material that's on that website and all those books that are back there. In time, as you learn your Bible and you learn the principles, that all gets inside your mind. That forms your basis for your your biblical library. And uh, you know that's how when you when you put that in there, that's exactly what happens. You come up and you have an issue you got to deal with with somebody or you have something in your own life, or you're working with somebody, and they lay out some extravagant problem that they've got, that's what you do, just like the lawyer did. You got a case, this person's got a problem. So you go to your law library, it's up in here, and while they're telling you what their issues are, you're pulling out the principles that you're going to use And then when they're done, just as a lawyer presents the evidence to the the jury, you present the case law of the Bible principle to that person, show them how to fix it. That's all it is. But it comes from laying up knowledge. That's how it starts. Last week I talked about digging wells. And lining, we talked about lining that well inside with brick or stone that keeps the water in so it doesn't seep into the dirt and, 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 and evaporate. Those bricks I told you last week, when you put that well into a spiritual concept, is a picture of the Bible doctrines that you learn. The principle that's in your Bible mind library that you line your well with that holds the water, the Word of God, in. Because it's all connected together in time, because of of the substance that supports the well, uh, that's all that you believe, you really get an understanding of how to use the Bible. What have you done? You've laid up knowledge. In time, like like our lawyer, these doctrines will form the deep well of knowledge and wisdom and understanding by which 
in any given situation, just like the lawyer goes to trial, you'll go through uh, your spiritual library, getting the principles that you need to build your case. And this is what the Bible called last week the lips of understanding, being able to speak to something with authority, being able to look at a situation and not give them your homespun philosophy, not giving them what your, your grandma said you need to do, going to an absolute standard of truth that gives them the case law from God on their particular issue. That's what I'm talking about. Now, you do that by laying up knowledge. You do that by 2 Timothy 2.15, study the show thyself approve. I said last week in Proverbs 15.28, the heart of the righteous studieth the answer. When it comes to the Bible, uh, you'll always be a student of the Word of God. Uh, There's no experts when it comes to the Bible. I want you to thoroughly understand that. This idea that there's Bible scholars out there who really know the Bible, that there's Bible scholars out there who are experts on the Word of God, they're only experts in their own mind. That's a puffed up, fleshy concept to make them think like they're better than you are. I want to tell you something. I don't believe there's any experts in anything in life, but I know there's no experts when it comes to the Bible. All we are are all our students on different levels. That's all we are. And the quicker you learn that, the better off you're going to be. In fact, the more you think you know about the Bible, you only demonstrate how less you really know about the Word of God. Because if you're really smart and you really know what the Word of God says to a degree on a level you're at, then you know how much you don't know. We see it on our own society of learning. You go to elementary school... You go to middle school, then you go to high school, and then you go to college. In all systems, you start out as a freshman, you start out as, then you go to a sophomore, and then you go to a senior, and then you graduate. And then you get, if you go all the way through, you get a a number of years of education. But you know as well as I do, you're not done learning yet. In fact, you're just beginning to learn. You went to school, you learned all this stuff, and so many people think, wow, I'm done with school now. No, now your school really starts because now you're in a position to take what you've learned and look at life, deal with life, go through with life, and continue to add to what you've learned and learn what you know from every experience in life. That's where you should be doing. That's where you're at. And that works the exact same way with Christianity. You get discipled. You go through discipleship too. You come here on Thursday night. You come over in one-on-one or you come to church on Sunday morning. You're in the people ministry. You get the special five things we do in the Bible. It doesn't stop there. It only starts there. Now you have the wherewithal to view everything in life because you're building the library, the biblical principles. You're laying up knowledge. Now, our lawyer, going back to our earlier statement, he has to go to law school. A doctor, he goes to medical school. A nurse goes to nursing school. There they all learn by other experienced lawyers, doctors, nurses, all that they need to know to practice law, medicine, or their nursing skills. He, in a worldly sense in his vocation, 
They lay up knowledge about being a lawyer, being a doctor, or being a nurse. And as a student of the Word of God, you and I will be in school for the rest of our lives, laying up knowledge. Because just as a lawyer practices law, he continues to educate himself. Nurses continue to be upgraded and learn because it is, a per, it is their life, it's what they do, it's their career, as do doctors. Well, if you're saved this morning and you take the Word of God seriously, then you're a career Christian. And you need to be updated. You need to continue to grow. You can't ever get to the place in your life where you say, okay, I don't have to grow anymore. When you do, you're in trouble. Now, school or schools are a great study in the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but the first Bible college is found in the Bible in the book of Acts. Now, we all know that believe the Bible about the rule of law first mentioned. The first time you find something in the Bible pretty much sets the standard for what it's going to be. And the first Bible college found in the Bible is in Acts chapter 19, verse 9. And it's not a good deal. It's not a good school. In fact, it's a school that was set up and it's teaching against the very teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ that he gave to Paul. And the Bible says that Paul goes in there and he goes at it with them for a period of time. And then he says, I'm done with you. Now, let me, and I think it's important sometimes that, that I give you my position on things uh, for the record. And that my position does not have to be your position. Obviously, I'm not stating that. I've never told you that you have to believe what I believe any more than I need to believe what you believe. I believe the Bible. When you believe the Bible and everything in it, then, then we're on the same page. But I understand that people have different opinions, and I never, never try to force my opinion on somebody else. But I do have my opinions. And my opinions are based, for the most part, on the principles in the Word of God. And my position on Bible colleges is simple. I've been accused all my life of being against Bible colleges. Uh, you know, I'm not really against Bible colleges, I'm just really pro-local church. I believe that the local church is God's program to teach you the Word of God, never a Bible college. And you say, why do you say that? Because the first Bible college found in the Bible, the only Bible college found in the Bible, was teaching against the Word of God. Now, maybe that don't mean nothing to you. It means something to me because the Bible is the format that I go by. My position about higher education when it comes to Christianity now, look, let me clarify it. If you're going to be a doctor, go get all the education you can. Go whatever schools you go to. Maybe it takes 30 years to be a doctor. I don't know. Do it all. Do it all. Because if I come to you, I don't want... I went to a doctor one time and had to have a very delicate operation that was really delicate. And, and to me, it was, it was scary. And he was a friend of mine, and I really liked him, and I wanted to give him my business, you know, so I went to him, and I had a particular delicate operation that needed to be taken care of, and he looked at me after he checked me out, and he said, you know what, I've never done that before, but here it is in the book. If you hold the book, I can get it done. Now, that's not what I'm looking for. In this particular operation, I would not be holding that book steady. I guarantee you. Get all the education you can. Learn everything you can. Be the best doctor you can be. If you're going to be a nurse, do the same thing. 
If you're going to be a lawyer, learn everything you can about law. Be the best lawyer you can be. We all make jokes about lawyers. Can we need one? Be the best one you can be. But I want to also tell you, when it comes to the Bible, that's where it stops. Because all you need in the Bible is the Holy Spirit of God and a New Testament local church that believes the Bible and a pastor who teaches the Bible. That's all you need. You don't need any higher education. You don't need any degrees to go along with it. And I'm telling you, my position on things like that is, again, it's Bible. It's Paul's position. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he went through all his spiritual academic credentials. He talked about being a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was trained by the best in the Old Testament law. He knew everything about the religion of the nation of Israel. He had higher education all of his life. But when it came to the revelation that God gave him, you know what he said in Philippians 3? He says, all that higher education I count as dung. Now, you want me to get the modern version of the word dung for you? You know what it means. That was Paul's position, my position. It's as simple as that. Mark this down. There's not one Bible college, not one university, not one seminary on earth that believes that you can have a copy of the inerrant, perfect, preserved Word of God. There's not one Bible college or seminary under the authority of any New Testament local church anywhere on this planet. They operate completely independent of God's New Testament program, which is the New Testament local church. Now, whatever your idea about that is, fine. But I'm telling you what the Bible says because I want you to understand that laying up knowledge has nothing to do with going to Bible college. has nothing to do with getting a degree. I got my degree in Bible many, many years ago. Most guys go to school and take 20 years to get their degree. I got mine when I was nine. I got my BA. I got born again. That's the only one I've needed. Now, when you go to high school, are are you having fun yet? I'd say this would be a fun time today. I want it to be fun for you. When, When you go to high school and you're ready to head to college, they give you what they call a guidance counselor. And I think they're very important. They help you plan your curriculum around your classes from what you've done in high school and and what you want to achieve in your goals. And I think that's a very good thing. But believe it or not, most kids going off to college from high school, they're not really many times sure what they want to take in their courses because they know they need to go to college, they want to go to college, but they're not really sure what they want to do in life. And I know a lot of college courses you can blend in and move and change around and get where you want to go. So a guidance counselor helps them decide so they don't get the wrong classes and waste a lot of time and waste a lot of money. And when it comes to laying up knowledge and getting God's wisdom and God's understanding and getting and going to God's school, in a spiritual sense, the pastor is your guidance counselor. That's part of his job. I make sure you get the right classes. I make sure that you don't waste your time and you get all that you need to fulfill what God has called you to do as a career Christian. Now, the church is God's school. It's just that simple. You'll never, if you get into the right church with the right teaching, with the right Bible, with the right people in charge, you will never have to step outside that church 
to learn anything more about the Bible. You'll get everything you want, and you will, it, you'll come so far ahead of the system out there that is outside God's system that you won't believe it. It's just that simple. But you know what? Churches are just like public schools. They are. They're all the same. Some of you are A-plus students. Some of you are B-plus students. Some of you are C students. Some of you are D students. And some of you, bless your hearts, you're going to flunk out. See it all the time. Nothing personal. But you know when you went to school, you had, you had people that graduated with a straight average of A's. That was not me. A straight average of B's. That wasn't me either. Straight average of C's. I wasn't even close to that one. And you find some who have a tough time and, and, and actually flunk out. We just went a couple of weeks ago to our grandkids meet the grandparents, parents, conference teachers, and I really enjoyed it, but I used to dread them when I had to go as a kid because I never got good reports. I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I, uh, it would be a lot easier in this day and age because I don't even know if they do report cards anymore now. I don't know what. They just send a big X home on your paper saying you're dead or something. I don't know. But, uh, but they, and, and a teacher, when you got an F, it was in red. You know, my dad didn't see real well, and I could get my glasses off my mom, and they could just see all, they couldn't really see it if it was all in black ink. But when you put an F in red, everybody sees it. And I used to, I used to, get, I used to get so nervous going to school before I get that report card. And I'll never forget, I used to go to parent-teacher conference, I'd sit there, and I heard it over and over and over again. He doesn't, he, he's a smart kid, but he just doesn't apply himself. He daydreams. Well, sure, I was daydreaming about winning the world to Christ. What were you doing, lady? God was deep, deep inside me, like little, like little Samuel, just building up a fire. And while everybody else is doing their math, I'm looking at Ethiopia and Japan and, and places like, no, I would, I, she's right. I'd look out, she said, he looks out the window all the time. What is a lot going on out there, man? <laughs> I mean, hey, I was, I was observing nature, you know? But she was right. I, you know, I never really applied myself to anything till first I went in the army and I applied myself to that. And then a little bit later on, I went into God's army and I applied myself to that. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the seven classes that ought to be in every church. Seven classes in God's school. And they ought to be in every church in this country. They ought to be in every church in this city. And uh, seven Bible classes that a church should teach all the time. And my goal for you is to show you how to lay up knowledge as a wise man, Proverbs 10, 14. And that's my goal. Now, I said we were going to have some fun with this, and we are, because I want you to grade yourself on this test. This is no curve. This is a straight-line test. And you don't have to share. You don't have to write. I wouldn't write it down because people sitting close to you. Just keep it in your little pitter-patter heart and keep it to yourself. Don't cheat off of somebody else. But here's the grading scale. If you get all seven of these, give yourself an A+. If you get five or six of them, give yourself a B-. If you get three or four of them, give yourself a C. If you only get two of them, give yourself a D. 
And if you don't get any or just one, give yourself an F. Rose, you have some of them red magic markers back there. I want you to walk up and down the aisle here in a little bit and pass some of them out. Now, it's a little test today. Told you we're going to have fun. Don't take it, take it serious, but don't have a heart attack over it. Now, I, I need to say this, and I always say this. If you're here today and you've been saved five years or less, you can take the test, but don't beat yourself up over it. You're just, a lot of you are just really getting into it. Five or six years from now, you'll max this test. So if you don't have it all down right now, it's okay. It's okay. Now, the first class that a church in God's school should teach should be a math class. You say, why a math class? I hated math in school. I never took algebra, never took trigger, 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 trigonogamy or whatever that is. I, I never took algebra, never took any of that stuff. I had a tough time getting out of general math. But that's okay. God always covered me. When I graduated from school, didn't have anything about all that other special math stuff. It wasn't two years I was out and somebody invented a calculator. <laughs> but you say, why a math class? Well, because... The key to getting to God is a number system, if you don't know that. The whole universe is built on a numeric system. Billy Graham one time witnessed Albert Einstein, who was the great mathematician back in the 20s and 30s. I think he died in the middle 40s. And he witnessed to him one time, and, and Billy Graham said, or Billy Graham witnessed to him, and Einstein said, uh, I could never accept a God that's not a mathematical formula. You know, he didn't know how close he was to getting the truth when he made that statement, but with a hairdo like he had, you couldn't get it anyhow. You ever notice how every place you go in life or whatever you do, you do it by a set of numbers? You say, I live in Kansas City, Missouri. That's latitude 39 degrees north, longitude 94 degrees west by a number system. You say, hey, Bob, I'll give you a call, 816-590-6315 to get a hold of me. Can I come over and see you this week? Yeah, you can, but you've got to come to 8308 Woodson Drive. You've got to go through a number system. I read in a paper the other day where a guy hit and run and hit some kid and tried to get away, but they caught him. You know how they caught him? Somebody got his license. Number. Everything runs through numbers. When the IRS and the government wants to find you, they look up your Social Security number. You say, what time is it? It's, uh, it's, it's uh, 11.45, numbers. Say, what are you going to do this afternoon? I'm going to bake a cake. Oh, that'll be 45 minutes in the oven at 250 degrees. <laughs> All numbers. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a little hot. I don't know. <laughs> Not hot enough? That's too slow? Too low. Hey, look, I'm just preaching a sermon. You figure out how to do a pie. In science, when you want to reach alien civilizations and they don't speak English, you have a universal language. You know what it is? It's prime numbers, numbers that are divisible by another number. That's the universal language. You know, the Bible's the same way. God does everything by numbers. God operates by seven. The devil operates by 13. Man operates by six. And uh, the complete, everything in the Bible that's complete is a system of threes. 
The Bible says the Jews are going to inherit the earth in outer space someday, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. So when God brought about the 12 tribes and what he did, first thing he did, knowing he was going to do that, is in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he divided the earth up into 12 boundaries, and then he divided the universe up into 12 sections, Revelation 21, 22. We call it the Zodiac, 12 constellations. Oh, and we get to heaven, it's going to, New Jerusalem's going to be about 12 foundations and 12 angels and 12 gates and 12 pearls. There's going to be a tree of life that bears 12 manner of fruit. Got 12 months into a year and Christ had 12 apostles. You see, 12 is a key number in the Bible of figuring a lot of things out. Somebody says, I want to find God. Well, you don't find God outside the Bible. Amen. But you know the Bible's a number system because when you come to God in the Bible, you got 66 books. 31,171 verses, 1,187 chapters. That's what you got. It's a number system. Bible is God's book to man to find out everything about him, but it's a numerical system. Somebody says, I need to get saved, Bob. Okay, go to the sixth book in the New Testament. That'll be Romans. Go to the third chapter and go to verse 10, and it says, that is as written, none righteous, no, not one. You see the formula was 6, 3, and 10. Then you go to Romans again, 6th book, to the 10th chapter, and then you read verses 9 and 10. So your formula is 6, 10, 9, and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and the mouth confesseth unto the made of salvation. See how it works? We say all the time, do the math! Well, if you want to find God, that's what you got to do. We say all the time, oh, doesn't add up to me. You're right. Some things don't add up. You say, well, I want to find out about the second coming of Christ, and I want to find out when he's coming back as close as I can. Okay, then the formula is this. You go to the 26th book in the Old Testament. That'll be Daniel. You go to chapter 9, and then you get verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. And then you'll find that there's 70 weeks, and then you'll find you've got to multiply 7 times 70, and you'll come up with 490, which is the years that it's going to take from the date of the rebuilding, which is 536 B.C. There it is. All numbers. See, you just look at the verses and you always forget that you have to go through a number system to get that. God is an incredible system. Now, I could spend a year on that alone, but I'm just trying to show you. You know what the next class would be? It'd be biology class. You remember when you were in high school and you took biology and you went anatomy and you cut up the little frogs? In some cases, cats. In medical school, they have real cadavers, real bodies. Some of them been there for 30, 40 years, and each class just gets the same old guy rolled out, and you look at all the different parts and everything, and, and uh, you learn all the workings of the human body. Well, God's class in biology, you see how God made man. And where in, in biology in the world, there's a, there's a, there's a medical anatomy. In the Bible, there's a spiritual anatomy. And you find out that man is a trichotomy. God, God made a man with a body, soul, and spirit. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you know about each of them? If you're saved, what do you know about your body, your soul, and your spirit? Can you explain them? Can you define each of them? You'd be surprised how many of God's people are saved and on their way to heaven, and they don't have a clue. Let me ask you this. What changed about your body the moment you got saved? What changed about your soul the moment you got saved? What changed about your spirit? The second you got saved. 
Now, you're in high school biology class, and you dissect that frog, you cut him up. But you know what? God did the exact same thing to you when you got saved. Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, that there's a circumcision made without hand, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Verse 12 says it was an operation of God made without hands. He cut you on the inside spiritually, and that's how you got saved. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit out of the joints and the marrow. That's not your physical body. Boy, when you got saved, God came down with that word of God, which is a sharp two-edged sword, and he cuts you on the inside and dissected you and set you apart from yourself. You You know, there's a lot of Christians, good people, and right now as we're in here in our class and we're having a good time, they're fretting. You know what they're fretting over? They're fretting over the fact that they can lose their salvation. They're worried to death that they're going to do something, say something, that God's going to take salvation from them. Do you know why they're in that state of mind in their life? Because they missed this class. You understand God's biology class? You'll never think twice about losing your salvation. That's how it works. That's how it works. Well, the third class should be a history class. You know, I've never seen Christianity in such a disastrous state as it is in today. God's people are totally confused. And the reason is because they're orphans. They have no roots to them in their Christianity. They have lost their heritage of who they are. Proverbs chapter 22 and 23 has the two greatest verses in all of the Bible uh, for the history class. Uh, 22, 28 says, Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set. That's Israel in the Old Testament. And Proverbs chapter 23, verse 10 says, Remove not the old landmarks and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. That's a New Testament church. You know where Christians are at today? They're in the fields of the fatherless. You don't know who your spiritual fathers were going back through history. You just don't know that. I feel sorry for you. Two landmarks. And all history is built around them. The Old Testament Israel, New Testament the church. You know, when you go to Bible college, you'll take a class on Old Testament survey and a class on New Testament survey. And they'll be the two worst, stupid, worthless classes you'll ever take. You know why? Because you're going to go up there and listen to some idiot try to tell you how to survey something when he doesn't even know where the landmarks are. You ever build a fence in your house and you didn't want to get it on your neighbor's property? Or maybe you built it and didn't get it checked and you got it on their property. And after you pay $2,500 for a fence, the neighbor goes up and says, you're four feet on my property. You know what you do? You survey it. You know, somewhere in your yard, somewhere in your yard or your neighbor's yard, there's a little marker. That marker was put back in the 1800s when they surveyed all of Missouri. And when a guy wants to survey and find out where your property is, he just doesn't say, this looks like it. Yeah, there's a trees right there. That's your property line, I'm sure. Yeah, look, I mean, the birds fly down the line. They know when everything is at. No. He finds that marker, goes off that marker, and then he gets exactly where your boundary lines are. In other words, when you want to survey something, you got to start with a boundary marker, a landmark. And you want to find out where God's at in the Old Testament, you better get Israel as your landmark and build it around that. You want to find out where God is in the New Testament, then you get the church and you build your survey off of that. Well, I've been into these things, man. Let me tell you something. Philip Schaff, he wrote seven volumes on church history. 
Those seven volumes are the standard for every Bible college in this country on understanding the history of the New Testament church. Let me tell you something. That old Episcopalian baby baptizing sprinkler couldn't find the landmarks in the Bible with a laser beam and a flashlight. Get a book by Ernemus called The Handbook of New Testament Christianity by Dowley. Get Christianity Through the Centuries by Carnes. I mean, when they write their account of church history, you think God and the devil died because they don't have any landmarks. And they all follow the same pattern that leads to nowhere, to a non-offensive, non-doctrinal, non-denominational mush position that has produced the Laodicean church age, a total catastrophic mess. Let me tell you something. Both those landmarks of Proverbs 22 and 23 are clearly defined in the Bible. They're easy to follow in the Bible. You just use your Bible and believe what it says and you'll get the right keys. Every time he asks you a question, you ever wonder why in the, new, in the beginning of the new te- Old Testament you have Genesis, which is the definitive book in the Bible for the Old Testament? It's Genesis. And then you have four books that are historical books that cover the same time. You have Genesis, then you have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those four books cover the same time period, and they follow the definitive book in the Old Testament, and that's where you start. Ah, but when you come to the New Testament, he changed it, didn't he? Now he gives you Math, Mark, Luke, and John, who are four books that cover the same time period, but then he puts a definitive book, Acts, at the end. Why did he change that? That's your first key of getting landmarks. I wish I had time to give it to you today. Boo, how, we've been through it a thousand times. You've been truant officers coming after you. You've been hanging out at Quick Trip. <laughs> listening to punk rock music and bad mouth in your country. <laughs> now here's the problem. Time is past, present, and future. Amen? Amen. It's not a complicated thing. But I'll tell you how it gets complicated. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you've come from and you don't know where you're going, please don't insult my intelligence by trying to get me to believe you know where you're at. You've got to have all three. You've got to have all three. This is why Baptists are so screwed up today. This is why they take Baptists off their names today, off their churches. Baptists are the only group, and I realize that there's a lot of idiot stick Baptists, and you say, well, I don't want to be associated with all the idiots. You know, whatever denomination you leave and go into, you're just training it for another set of idiots. You'll never find a denomination that doesn't have idiots. Just like you'll never find a church that doesn't have idiots. Every church has got them. We got lovable ones, but we got them. And you're going to find that you're going to find that wherever you go, Listen, the Baptists were given their, they're the only body of believers that were given their name by their enemies because of the doctrine that they stood for, that they would not back down, and they built their doctrine around seven distinctives that are found in the Bible that the whole New Testament church is built on. They don't even know it today. Well, the fourth class. Fourth class would be a civics class. Government. You know, 
You'd be absolutely amazed at the people today in America that are in their 20s and 30s, and they went to, they went to grade school, they went to high school, they graduated, and they know nothing about the three branches of government and the separation of powers in our country. They know nothing about the executive branch, the judicial branch, or the legislative branch. They think it's a tree. <laughs> they have no idea how our government... And yet, they, they live in this country... They live under this rule of government, and they have no idea who it is. I've been asked from time to time on the news, they'll have these guys out there asking young people like yourself, you know, who's the vice president? They don't even know. Who's the secretary of defense? They haven't got a clue. Now, I can see you want to forget who Joe Biden was, but, I mean, the concept of, of our country, come on. And when it comes to the Bible, the theme of the Bible is about a government. It's not about your salvation. It's about a government, God's government, and the establishment of that government throughout the whole Bible. And just like our government has three parts, God's government has three parts. You ever see it? Got to have three to be complete. It's got the Old Testament kingdom of, God, kingdom of heaven. It's got the New Testament kingdom of, kingdom of God. And then it's got a king on the throne when he comes back, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government, see, shall be upon his shoulders. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government. There's a government. There's a government. The book of Ecclesiastes, when Solomon goes through all the forms of government of my man, he talks, about, he talks about socialism and communism. He talks about fascism and Nazism. He talks about a democracy, and he talks about capitalism. He goes through them all. And when we look around us today, we think our form of government is the best government on the planet because we have so many freedoms, you see, because man wants his rights today. And so we look at that, and you hear it all the time. This is why we're in Afghanistan. This is why we're in the Middle East. And this is why we fought uh, to free, suppressed nations. We want to make them a democracy. And you're told all the time that, uh, you know, that, that this government was formed as a, demo- as a democracy. And that's simply not true. This government was formed as a democratic republic. And there's a big difference. You see, a democracy is where the majority rules. 51%. Anything passes. If you want to legalize abortion, you get 51%. If you want to legalize a same-sex marriage, just get 51%. You want to legalize marijuana, just get 51%. Anything. But our country was not set up on the concept of a democracy alone, but the foundation of a republic. A republic is a system that is established. Leaders follow an absolute rule, and that absolute rule was the Bible. They voted on, should the price of corn be this or that? Should gasoline be this or that? But when it came to things that were clearly moral issues defined in the Bible, there was no voting on them. That's a republic. The word of God was this country's moral compass based on a republic. Noah Webster, we sell a dictionary back there. Probably almost all of you have that, and you probably have never read the beginning preface where he gives you some of the greatest insight on his time that he's living, and that dictionary, he states that a republic has the Bible as its foundation. So man wants to build a democracy. Some men want to have a monarchy where you have a king. Some have a republic. 
Some have anarchy. Some have a dictatorship. But when God comes back to establish his government, it's a theocracy. It's God on the throne, you see. Government class is really important. Then the fifth class. This should be an English class. The development of the English language is one of the most, to me anyhow, is one of the most fascinating studies you'll ever, you'll ever take. And I know it's boring, it sounds boring, uh, but you begin to realize that God down through history has ever, only ever had three universal languages by which he has given his word to the world. And then it becomes a little more interesting. In the Old Testament, it didn't matter what the Amalekites were doing or the Babylonians were doing or the Assyrians were doing. In the Old Testament, God said, my universal language is going to be Hebrew. So he wrote the Old Testament in Hebrew. And if the Amalekites didn't like it, that's tough. God said, it's not what you think the universal language was in your great, great universities. It's what I say the universal language is. It's Hebrew. We got the New Testament signed. Alexander the Great, the great Greek empire, had literally changed the world. He's off the scene now. The Roman Empire has come on, but the Greeks had such an impact on the world that now the world is a Greek-speaking world. So when God gave the New Testament, he put it in, put it in Greek. Put it in Greek. As church history progressed and God wanted to get his word to the world and after the Reformation and all of the things where the word of God is going to go out to the ends of the earth, God knew that there had to be a seafaring nation that was going to get it done and only thing that was going to be able to get it done was one nation who loved him and loved his word. There was only two seafaring nations in that time. One of them was Spain, Roman Catholic. The other one was England who loved God and, and just put out the King James Bible. As you know what he did? He knew the universal language was going to go to to English because he was going to use the empire of England to take that Bible around the world about five or six times in the next 400 years, so he put it in English. Now, there's a lot of people that have a problem with that. They don't like that. I don't particularly care for it myself. I don't really care one way or the other. I just believe uh, God discriminates the way he wants. He chose it to be English. He didn't choose German. Germany was landlocked. He didn't choose Czechoslovakia. They went into apostasy. He couldn't use Spain, he couldn't use Rome, he couldn't use Italy, so he found an English-speaking nation, and then he took that nation and the English language, and he set the standard for the next 400 years. You realize that right now, on my watch, I got, I got 1205. What do you got? 1205. What do you, what, who else has got it? What do you got? What, you nobody got any watches anymore? I'll preach on that next week. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? 1204. What do you got? 1204. What do you got? 1205. Forget this. This isn't working. My point is, oh, I know what it is. You guys have got those new fancy things. That, but, but my point I was going to make is this. You got 1205, you got 1204, you got 1203, you got 120 this, you got 120 that. Are they all reliable? No. There's only one exact time. And do you know why that all you agreed with me with your little iPhone 5s, the little demon-possessed phones that you all have? (laughs) Do you know why they all agreed? Because they're set mathematically on a place in England. Because 
all time is set in England. And if you want to know what time it is in America, Swahili, Russia, Pakistan, China, wherever you go, you've got to get English time. And you want to find out what time it is biblically in this world, you've got to get an English Bible. It's just that simple. Language is a great thing, man. I don't have time to lay it all out. And today, from God's standpoint, England is English is the universal language of the world. God gave his word in a King James 1611, and in its final form, it has stood for 400 years because the Philadelphian church and the missionaries out of England took it around the world five or six times and established the English language in every country on this planet. Well, our sixth one, this will be a fun one. The sixth class you ought to have in your church is you ought to have a music class. Now, this class, you learn about music, and there's so much here. Now, there's two aspects to a music class. There's vocal, that's singing. I am going to that city far beyond the sky. I have made my reservation for my home on high. My soul was bought at Calvary by my father's only son, and he's got my mansion ready. When my work is done, God made a way for me beyond the crystal sea. That's singing, say. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just take little dollar bills, put them in an airplane, fly them up here. No, but that's singing, see? But there's another form of music called music theory. And music theory is the development of music, the working of notes, chords, keys. Where Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says that the word of God dwell in you richly, and then psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that's singing. But music theory goes beyond that. Music theory is the development of motes, chords, keys, harmonies, and also the history of music. And the understanding music history, you must see the development of music as the development of the Word of God because you can't separate the two. Everything in this world will depend on what the world does with the Bible. And you see it in music. You see it in art. You see it in sculpture. You see it in everything, but you certainly see it in music. Now, if you wanted to take a class in this church, and I've taught this probably many, many times, uh, you'd find out that there's five historical perspectives to music coming down through history that brings us right up to where we're at today. The first one's called the Baruch period. And that's a very primitive period, around 1100 to 1400. You want to keep in mind that there's no great composers during this period of time. There's a reason for that. There's no great symphonies that are written during this time. This is a time where you find some organ selections, you find a little minstrel singers, you know, and all that, and you find really the development of harmonics. You find what they call prolipony, which is the playing of more than one melody, and, and leonin, which is the working of harmony together. Folk music's very popular, but it's very primitive. And the reason why it's primitive, because we're in the Dark Ages, and the Roman Catholic Church has squashed and squelched everything. There's no art other than Roman Catholic art, there's no music other than Roman Catholic music, and it's, it's terrible stuff. Nothing is ever being done uh, because the Catholic Church has suppressed everything, including the Word of God. And from 1100 to 1400, well, you know what happened in 1500. In 1500, Martin Luther brought about the Reformation. And the Reformation brought about the King James Bible going through Europe. And going around the world. And you know what it did when God opened up the door and the light of God's word shone across Europe? It opened up what is called in classical music as the golden age. 
the period of time in this period where music is written uh, to seek to seek and to glorify God. It's man during this period of time who now has the light of the Word of God. The shackles of Rome have been thrown off. The light of the Word of God is into Europe. And now it's man expressing his love for his Creator. It's Bach, Ode to Joy. It's Haydn, 1732. It's Mozart. It's Gluck. It's Handel and Handel's Messiah. Every Christmas, they always come to have Handel's Messiah. It's everywhere. It'll be on television. It, uh, and, and everybody, you know, gets together and they sing it. And the, and the Moron Tabernacle Choir, you know, puts on a big deal with it and sings it. And it's always, a, you know, you, it's always a joke to me. People go to hear that and they go to watch that and they have no idea that that was written in the golden age because the word of God had just shown its first rays on Europe and these men were seeking to glorify God in what they wrote in their music and it was given back to him. And then you got some stupid, depraved, godless Mormon standing up there saying he shall reign forever and ever. They don't believe one thing in that song. They don't believe he's coming back and reign forever and ever. They believe that he's on a planet someplace producing white people and black people and bringing them down here and the white people are the sons of God and the black people are sons of the devil. That's what they believe. When they get up there saying, he shall reign for, they don't believe a thing about that. And sitting down there, and, and for me, I love the song and I love to hear it, but boy, I just can't get into it. When I see somebody up there that's singing it that doesn't believe one thing about that song. They'll go right out of there and back to their back to their temple. And when he reigns forever and ever, where do you think he's gonna reign forever and ever? Where? Where? Where on earth? Where on earth? Where? Where? Help me out here. Where? They think he's coming to independence. If God was coming back to independence, he'd be satisfied with a country western song. Broke my truck, broke down, my dog died, my wife left me, Israel, so now I'm just in independence. <laughs> Are you having fun yet? Oh, yeah. I told you we would. Then we go into the Romantic period. 1760 to 1900. And the change between the classical period and the romantic period, if you study and lay up knowledge, is remarkable. Now we see during this time that the Jesuits under the Oxford movement and the reclaiming of the counter-reformation has begun to do its damage now after a couple of hundred years. And now music no longer is written to glorify God. But as the Bible phases off in Europe and Europe goes back into darkness and apostasy, now the music is written to glorify man. Self-expression, feelings, flesh. You got Beethoven who died in the middle of a thunderstorm shaking his fan at God screaming that the comedy is over. You got Schubert. 1800, Chopin, 1810, Mendelssohn. And now we start to begin to see the dark side with things like Dukas in 1790 writing the great sorcerer's apprentice, a demonic sorcerer who takes an apprentice and begins to teach him the ways of witchcraft. 
In the modern period of music, it again reflects the attitude of man in the Word of God in his total rejection. Total rejection in the Romantic period. And it becomes a part because the, the Oxford movement and the reclaiming, as I said, of bringing back the, uh, and underdoing the Reformation, uh, bringing back all those places into the Roman Catholic Church, and it goes. And the fourth one is the modern period of music. This will be 1900 to 1930. And I, I'm just giving you a brief here. I could, I, could spend, I could spend six months on this. But it, again, it reflects the attitude of man toward the Word of God in a total rejection. Music at this time continues to glorify man and deify man, but now begins to paint a picture with music, vivid, graphic description of man and his, his selflessness and his, his, his journey against God. And now we see a demonic devils actually being brought into the picture and witchcraft. We see Brahms. We see Chopin when he did his The Charge of the Light Cavalry, which most of you would know in a minute as the thing that you could actually see the horses uh, going down there. You can actually see the horses in your mind. And then we have the, we have the Richard Wagner with his ride of the Valkyries. Those are demons. And Lauren Grin, demonic, dark, satanic. It all appeals to the physical flesh, the sight and flesh, and it gets farther away from God. And then around 1940 or so to 2014, the time that we live in, we find the natural period. And with this period, a total breakdown of music into an animalistic, humanistic, sexual expression of man and women and their tendencies. And by the time it gets to the 80s and the 90s, there's no music at all. It's just noise. It suggests the music to appeal to the sexual desire of man. People like Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky. We find a development of blues and jazz and rock and then hard rock and then acid rock and then heavy metal and the breakdown and collapse of music, uh, much like society. And by the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and certainly by today, the Bible's gone. Now the music groups, we've come a long way from the classical period. Now the musical groups and the songs, they portray the animalistic uh, uh, passions of animals, and they're named after animals, and creeping things, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Now the dance is the bunny hop. Now it's in the mood, not for going to church. Now you got groups called the Animals. Now you got a group called the Beatles. Now you got a group called Three Dog Night, which should be chained to a dog's hind leg, but that's my own personal opinion. <laughs> then you got the Monkeys. Then you're headed down the road of depravity to hell with Kiss and Twisted Sister and killing chickens and dressing up like demons, just like Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 laid it out. Now all this works its time into the Christian music. And this is what you got in churches today that, that you just, it's all worldly stuff. We use that hymn though right there, Great Hymns of the Faith. We'll stick with it forever. You know why? Because every hymn in there, almost without exception, was written during the Philadelphian church age. You can preach those sermons. You can preach those sermons. And it's a, it's a, great, it's a great thing. Uh, Chris Picano back here, if you haven't got one of his CDs yet, he's, he's a master at taking biblical verses and put them to music, actual verses to music. That's what it's really all about. That's what it's supposed to be. But you see how it develops and gets in and destroys churches. 
And this is why in churches today, if you close your eyes, you could be in a nightclub someplace. They got the praise band, which is nothing more than a watered-down jazz band. They got the same stuff, the same lyrics. It's not about God anymore. It's about I love him, I love him, I love him. Him could be ever who he wants to be. In our world, it could be a a girl, I love him, or it could be a guy, I love him. It doesn't matter, but that's where it's at. Then our seventh class, moving right along here. Our seventh class should be our science class. Bible's the greatest scientific book in the world. Greatest scientific book in the Bible would be Job, because Job's the oldest book in the Bible. Genesis might be the first book, but Genesis is written some 2,500 years after Job is written. The book of Job deals, deals out and lays out and details creation morning in Job chapter 38. The book of Job explains dinosaurs in Job chapter 40, 41, and 42. The Bible uh, told us that the world was round in Isaiah chapter uh, 40, uh, uh, 40, verse 22, 2,000 years before Columbus ever set sail. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 6, that the wind goes through circuits. Ecclesiastes 1, 7 talks about the water cycle. Uh, snowflakes being different, Job 37, 6. Fingerprints being different on man, Job chapter, uh, Job chapter uh, uh, 37, verse 7. They didn't know that until 1920. Automobiles found in Nahum and Isaiah. The moon reflecting light, not shining by its own, Job 25. Fresh water found out in the oceans of salt water, Job 38, 16. Light always moving, Job chapter 38, verse 19. Telegraph, telephone, Job chapter 25, verse 35. The sun, the center of the solar system, Malachi chapter 4. The Bible talks about black holes in Jude. We talked Thursday night about black holes in Woodward in the movie we saw Interstellar, and I showed you how some of that stuff is unbelievable, how it all finds its source in the Bible. Now, if a young man or a young lady is going to lay up knowledge, then he'll have to go to school. You're going to have to get in a church that's got the right curriculum with the right teachers, and you're going to have to go to work. And you'll notice that there's three classes missing that I I didn't add to this because they're not in God's curriculum. First of all, there's no recess. There's no time off from serving God. No summer break, no spring break. You're learning 24-7 the rest of your life in everything and about everything. And the next class that's never included is no home economics class. Because the Word of God's already been prepared for you. You don't have to fix it. Back in Exodus chapter 16, when he brought the manna down to the people, when they had a picture of the Word of God, you know that Bible says he brought the manna right to where the people were. All they had to do was open a tent door, scoop it up, take it in and eat it. And one of the great things about the Bible is you don't have to prepare it doing anything. God brought that book right to where you're at, put it right in your lap. All you got to do is eat it. And then, of course, the last class that they don't have in God's school, no drama class. No drama. No fantasy productions going on here. Only real-time situations and real-life scenarios. No drama queens. No kings of, of, of drama. You know, the last part of verse 14 says, but the mouth of a fool is near destruction. There's some people that just always got to have some impending disaster that they got to tell everybody about. They're always living in the next uneventful scenario of their life. 
They never get outside. They never learn how to deal with it. They always are just painting the picture, woe is me, but never willing to fix it. They just thrive on it. Now, you can grade yourself. If you got all seven, give yourself an A+. If you got, don't let anybody see your score now. If you got five or six, give yourself a B-. minus. If you got three or four, give yourself a C. If you got two, you got a D. And if you got one or none of them, you got an F. So in your own heart, in your own mind, and I say again, if you've been saved five years or less, uh, uh, you can take the test, enjoy it, but don't take the results too seriously. You're just getting on time. But man, I'm telling you something. If you've been saved 10, 12, 20, 30 years, and you don't know these things, man, you've been playing hooky somewhere. I mean, either that or you've been going to a bad school. You want to lay up wisdom? You want to do what the Bible says? Then that's how you do it. You build a library of biblical truth that you keep inside that in every scenario that you look at, whether it be in history, whether it be in music, whether it be in dealing with people, body, soul, and spirit, second coming, rapture, drinking problems, satanic strongholds, depression, you name it. You go to your library and you pull out the principles that you need not to give your own opinion, but to lay out what the Word of God says. And when you build that library in your life that you can talk biblically, intelligently about every issue in life, you've laid up knowledge. You see, it isn't just your knowledge you're laying up, it's God's knowledge. And when you get God's mind, the Word of God, you get God's knowledge, then you got it. And... uh, I heard a variation of this message 46 years ago. I heard a variation of this 46 years ago, and I was where some of you are at right now. And brother, when I heard it, it impacted my life, impacted my world, and I went to school. I made up my mind that I was going to, and I still wanted to do fun things. I didn't become a monk and live in a monastery. I wanted to have fun, and I wanted to enjoy life, but I realized that my chief goal in life was to lay up wisdom. And I knew I had to go to school. And I happened to be in a church where they had a school and they were teaching the same stuff that I'm teaching you. And boy, I just got everything I could get. I spent time going through it, learning it. And when I got to a point where I could self-teach myself, I started getting a hold of every book I could read. I started to get everything out of the Bible for everybody, and I started to weigh that thing out and put that thing down. I went through history. I went through English. I went through music. I went through it all. I went through at least five, 600 books on church history before I came to the conclusion of where I'm at and why I believe what I believe. I'm not some old yeehaw geezer up here that just wants to give my own impression. Brother, I've been there. I read Philip Schaff's seven volumes several times. I read Carnes' History of Christianity 20 times. I read Ernemus' book, the handbook of, of the Christianity, 30 times. I know where they're at. I know where they're at. And if you want to go to school in your life, and you're here this morning and you say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do, I can have you with the right people to get your school started before 1230, and it's 1224 right now. But it's up to you. Just like I had to decide for myself, you'll have to decide for yourself. 
But if you're ever going to lay up knowledge, these are the classes that you need. And then you get these classes and you use them the rest of your life. All right, we're going to have a word of prayer in a minute here, and I'll call you back. But you folks, Jamie will be back there at the deal. 